Hello and welcome to the Anthem Wrap. I'm Harriet Pry with a special podcast looking ahead to the Women's World Cup and I've got two extra special guests with me today as well. We've got England's most cap player, of course, Farrah Williams and M&S Eat Well nutritionist Sophia Lynn. But first of all, thanks for both being with us. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to obviously preview the Women's World Cup. We're also going to talk specifically about some of the differences in, in the research between the men's and the women's game. But to start off with, Farrah, it's only a few days now until everything kicks off. You've been in the situation. How does it feel when you're leading up to one of the biggest tournaments of your career? Yeah, as a player, when you're out there, I think as soon as you arrive and touch down, you know, wherever the tournaments are taking place, it, it really does kick in. There's a obviously a huge build up to it in terms of time and waiting for it to happen. And I'm sure the girls are now itching, as I would have been as a player, to get themselves out there and get that first game started. Yeah, and you made your debut at 17 and there's a lot of players as well that they haven't played international football before. So for them as well, just give an insight into what that feels like when you make your debut and you're a bigger uh, part of this tournament for the first time. Do you know what? It's, it's probably less pressure as a youngster making a debut and playing in major tournaments because you're, you really are fearless. There's no real perception of you as a player. Um, and you literally play like you're out there on the streets, for example, as a kid, as I mentioned there, without any fear. And as you get older... And you realise the pressures that come with that and the expectation that comes with that. Actually, you're more nervous the older you get because you realise the impact that you're having, you know, on the next generation of players and, you know, being a role model out there. You, you know, you try and perform and hold yourself in a certain way. So some of these youngsters are, are only now learning what it takes to be an international. It's um, These are the enjoyable parts when you're young and playing international football. As you get older, yes, it's enjoyable when you put the shirt on, but everything around that is uh, yeah, quite intense. Yeah, and we'll, we'll come on to the research next, but final thing, I guess, this tournament could be hugely significant for the women's game. We saw the Euros last year and the impact that had on the country, I guess, and the view of women's football. How significant do you think this one could be in terms of changing the trajectory of that and putting it on an even better path than it's already on? Yeah, I think so. And I think not just for, for our game, I think our game's already growing at a rapid rate. But I think the fact that there's so many good nations, you know, participating in the World Cup. It could enhance, you know, their leagues back in their own countries. And I always think with the World Cup, it's all, always, you know, important that some of the, the lower nations that don't really get an opportunity for their players to get any sort of exposure, it does give some young, talented players, you know, hope that with the exposure, they could probably get a, a professional contract somewhere across, you know, Europe, for example. So, yeah, I'm excited for some of the lower nations to... Because I know there are, you know, little gems in all of these nations that I think it just gives a little bit of hope to now that the game is where it's at. Yeah, huge international stage for some of these players to shine on. And Sophia, let's bring you in then, because it's obviously key players that are missing from last year's Euros and a lot of them are due to injuries, ACL injuries. And that's got a lot of attention recently and the differences in research between the men's and women's game and men's and women's footballers and newcomer that specifically from a nutrition perspective. So can you just give a bit of an insight into how, I guess, the trajectory's been and the, the difference in research up until now? Yes, yeah, so what we know is that there is more research required to look at the individual differences between men and women, and particularly in relation to looking at injury, but also into the reasons why um, women are under-fueling in sports. So that's something we tend to see across football, but all across all across other sports as well, that women underfuel, and so they're not getting the right amount of energy they need for prolonged periods of times of playing sports, so intense exercise. Now, one of the reasons 
that will usually be is due to the amount of carbohydrate that you need in order to perform to have that quick release of energy and that requires quite a lot of planning and also making sure that you can enjoy your food and get that into the diet so what we're really focusing on at MS is trying to develop products that are delicious and healthy and that the lionesses enjoy but also that our customers enjoy so that whether you're on the pitch or on the playground you know you've got to eat well to play well. Yeah, and Farah, what was it like for you starting out from a nutrition perspective? Was there much attention on it, much focus on it, or could you just kind of do what you wanted? Then we to be honest. <laughs> no, yeah, there wasn't. To be honest, when I uh, first started, there was yeah zero attention on what you should eat. To be fair, more so than anything when I first started out, which is strange now, is carbohydrates was all we knew. So eating lots of pasta and yeah, probably overfueling the pasta and feeling a lot heavier than than you should have. Um, was what we probably did because that's the only education we knew. You know, carbohydrates obviously helps fuel. But obviously I think, you know, certainly when I come to more towards the retirement end of it, there are more nutritionists on board really trying to help and educate. But I think the difference is when you started out and you had loads of carbohydrates and you was a bit weighty, to then realise or be told that carbohydrates ain't good, they've gone the opposite way now. So they've completely cut out carbohydrates, which is what you need to fuel um, so rather than trying to get that in moderation and in balance with what you know each individual needs, they pretty much cut that out and underfuel. So you go from probably being a bit too weighty to now completely underweight, in my opinion, and probably not being able to perform consistently at the same level throughout. Yeah, we mentioned earlier how significant Euros was in terms of bringing up young players and, and young girls to want to play the sport. But there is a drop-off level, isn't there, Sophia? And girls get to a certain age and due to things like body image and not feeling comfortable and being self-conscious people stop playing football. So give a bit of an insight into some of these factors and how they're, I guess, p p holding the women's game back in a sense because young girls are dropping off at a certain age. Yeah, so we need to understand a lot more about what are the nutrition requirements of women to be able to support them and prolong their you know, careers in football and other types of sports. So when we think about the differences between men and women, things like Underfueling, as I've mentioned, but also looking at things like calcium intake, iron in particular, when you have your menstrual cycle as well, we know that iron's depleted within the body. So between the ages of 19 to 30, that's a really crucial time to be getting more iron within your diet. So that would come from things like meat, fish, um, poultry, eggs, but also you can have plant-based sources like seeds, pulses, but they tend to be less bioavailable. So we have to be really planned in terms of the types of diets that the players are having to be able to get those key nutrients in and similarly with calcium we know that with the impact on sport through the intensity that is really important to be having calcium in your diet to help have you have strong bones um, and also that's something that we are seeing as a high risk for women that they are deficient in calcium. Yeah, these hormonal changes are thing that aren't really spoken about, are they? That's the thing, though. I guess there's less stigma around it now than five, even two, three years ago. But there needs to be a much more kind of less stigmatised conversation around hormones and how these things are really impacting women and, and women in sport in particular. Yeah, so nutrition just isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. So even between the individuals, but also between men and women as well. So absolutely more research into these areas. But also what we want to focus on is really trying to help people understand the types of foods that they need to fuel them to be their best. So learning more about the types of nutrients that are important, but making it really easy to find those if you are going into a store like M&S and you can see the sunflower and know that that's going to be a healthy choice is a sort of quick shortcut and makes it more more convenient, which we know is a barrier for people making healthy choices as well.
Yeah, and there's more research, I guess, needed in all those areas. And Farah, you've been real part of the growth of women's sport and you started playing when things were, you know, there's not the attention and everything there is now. But what has it been like being part of it, firstly on the pitch and then later off the pitch as a pundit and really recognising that growth and growing with women's football? No, I think it's been, you know, fantastic. I think the fact the game is where it's at is where we've always wanted it to get to. Um, it's still growing. We still need to get a lot of things right, I think. For me, when I was playing, diet and nutrition was so important and I think it was misleading at times, um, uneducated um, and there was a stigma around it. It was, you know, and obviously with women having to look and feel a certain way, um, in my opinion, leads to eating disorders. And so it's important that we have nutritionists on board that gives the right information, you know, about food and we don't just read, you know, in my opinion, silly little articles or, you know, Instagram posts where, you know, carbs are the devil and whatever, whatever. You know, no carbs before marbs, avoid avoid <laughs> carbohydrates at all costs and all of that. I think it's, you know, bad representation of actually what it does for athletes. So, as you mentioned, I think that the fact that MS have joined up and partnered up with the FA, I think in terms of the role modelling from, from the, the Lioness teams, I think that's key for young girls growing up um, and understanding the importance. But, I mean, I think that the, the sunflower thing in terms of going into MS, like knowing that actually if you see a, a product within MS that has that sunflower on, you're more often than not going to make a good choice with it if you pick up one of those products. So if I'd have had that when I was playing or even as a kid, like my nieces and nephews now, for them to see that, I think it's really important. You know, you're making a better choice than, you know, having to look through all the, the packaging at what how much fat and protein and carbs are in, are in it. So I think it's important that it's pretty much done for you and it's a quick and easy way to just, yeah, eat healthy, I guess. Yeah, 100%. And you've worked with a lot of young girls as well as a coach. And can you see that these things are having an impact even from that really young age? Yeah, I mean, you talk about the dropout and it is, it's an image thing. It's, you know, women's or girls' bodies change over, you know, say, for example, the, the summer period, which is most evident to a coach because they go away for the six weeks and then they come back after the summer and, you know, they've gone from 11 years of age to 12 and that growth there in terms of their body has changed and they can't adapt to that and they start to feel uncomfortable with that. And at that age, there's no education around why that's happening. So take out diet and nutrition, take out anything. They don't understand why their body is changing in the way it is. Now you bring nutrition into it and start to understand a little bit more about that. I think it helps them. And I think it will retain players a lot more if they understood and had a little bit of help and guidance around certainly the nutrition. Because at the age, we all put weight on. We're kids, we eat what we want. We, we like things, we're trialling stuff. Um, and as I said, I think it's important if we have a nutritionist rather than coaches telling players they're overweight, which then leads to, as I say, eating disorders and drop out of, you know, huge numbers of female players. I think it's important that we start really early with that. Yeah, and there does come a point, like you say, when your body just changes so much and you don't understand that when you're a teenager and you're all these things are happening to you and it is really confusing. And Sophia, social media has such an impact in that sense. And for you as a nutritionist, you must see some of these things on there and just feel angry, I guess, and upset that this information is being spread to such a widespread platform at, at girls at a really impressionable young age. Yeah, I think we know that there's a lot of misleading information out there. And that's one of the things that we've been really focusing on is how do you kind of get that cut through in terms of being trusted with the advice that you're giving? And we know that the advice that we see in different areas of the media changes all the time. So we actually work on our Eat Well guidelines. We have a team of nutritionists at MS, but we also work in consultation with the British Nutrition Foundation. So really making sure we've got that credibility in terms of the advice that we're giving um, and making it as easy for people as possible to follow. But you're absolutely right. We need to have more of a focus on helping 
helping to make the information easily understood and also food is there to be enjoyed at the end of the day like it's a social occasion you know sharing food with friend and family friends and families um, is a big part of it too so making sure that you've got choices that you actually enjoy particularly for um, sports you know when you, when your um, the lionesses are on tour they need to have convenient options that they're going to enjoy and hopefully lots of people will be having food parties and watching the Lioness Yeah, game. absolutely. Yeah. I will be. <laughs> Kicking off with a healthy breakfast on Saturday, I think, before the game. Get, get the eggs. How do you assess England's chances? We know, obviously, that they won the Euros and they were going into this tournament as one of the favourites. A few injuries have made people a little bit more doubtful about that. But what do you think about their chances in this tournament? Uh, they've got they've got as good a chance as anybody. I do think it's a lot more <clears throat> excuse me difficult for them given the injuries that they have and the key players. I mean, you know, some other nations have obviously got injuries as well, but they're more squad players. These three players that have picked up, you know, injuries and are out, they were key players for us in the summer. So I think they're hard to replace. I think we have a great squad, um, but we're certainly on the difficult side of the, you know, the the, the, the track through to the, um, or the route through to the final. So if I was to give my prediction, if we get through the quarterfinals, we could go on to win it, but I think we'll fall at the quarterfinal stage. I hope not. I'm sounding really negative and I don't mean to be, but <laughs> I'm trying to give an honest opinion. You've got a good reputation of being <clears throat> predictions, haven't you? So we'll finish with a few quick fire ones. And is it Germany then that you think are the, are the favourites going into this? Is that what you're saying? How did you know? Have you heard me say that somewhere else? <laughs> it's the path of the final, isn't it, as yeah, well? Yeah. I do think England or Germany... Way. Mm, yeah, so that game, I think if England faced Germany in the quarters, if Germany beat us, then I think they'll go on to win it. Not the USA? That'll be the final. That'll be the final. And then, Germany. Yeah, in terms of England's standout player, who do you think that's going to be? Kira Walsh. Kira Walsh, you're going for Germany as the winner. Any dark horses you can tell us to look out for? Do you know what? It's not really a dark horse, but it is a dark horse because no one's speaking about them. I think the French... French. I think yeah. France could, um, yeah, I mean, we'll meet them in the semis if we go that way. I think we'll meet them around that way. But yeah, they could um, they could be a dark horse. No one's speaking about them. And top scorer of the competition, final one. I keep changing this. You know, yeah. every day I get asked to change it. Um, <laughs> are Australia going to get past the 16? I don't know. Pop. Pop of Germany. Are you changing this every day? Is this what's happening? Yeah, I haven't said pop yet, but I heard someone brought that to my attention yesterday, so I thought I might as well throw it out there today. Yeah, and Sophia, you're excited getting involved in all, in all the buzz of everything? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's been a real um, dream to get to work with the FA and particularly with the Lionesses and Fire and understanding more about the types of foods that they love, but also, you know, helping them to understand the right things that they should be having as well. So really excited for Saturday to kick it off. Um, and yeah, just a, a great to continue being able to really use the power of football to make eating healthy something that we all want to get involved in. Well, brilliant. Farah and Sphere, thank you so much for joining us. Hope you all enjoy the tournament. I hope everyone listening has got a bit of an insight into things there as well. Thank you for coming on today. Thank, thank you. you. Hello and welcome to the Ampel Wrap. And I'm really excited today to be doing a Women's World Cup preview with Emma Sanders from the BBC. And we've just been talking about your packing struggles. You're going out there very soon, aren't you? Are you looking forward to it? Yeah, literally flying out Friday morning. Well, technically it's kind of Thursday night because it's so early in the morning. So yeah, very excited, a little bit stressed, but uh, we're getting there. Any advice on packing, guys, please send it over. 
It's a funny one, actually, because I was talking to some of the guys in the office and saying it doesn't feel like this huge anticipation like the women's Euros because that was in the UK. But actually, this is going to be such a huge event for women's football. And I'll read out a bit of the context before I come to you on this. But it's the 32 team format, full month of top flights done in international football matches held in 10 stadiums across nine cities in both Australia and New Zealand. And you're getting three or four games a day, essentially, until I think the 3rd of August, the beginning of August. Just how significant is this at a time when it already feels like the women's game is gaining so much momentum? Yeah, I think it's really significant. As you say, there probably hasn't been the same kind of hype and that has been impacted by obviously the time difference and a lot of the the bigger nations are obviously European-based apart from you know the likes of the USA and Canada. So um, yeah, I think it will be one of those tournaments that hopefully as it takes off um, and as the tournament progresses, then, then the hype around it will grow as well. And naturally... Here in our country, if, if England do well, then obviously that will help things. But yeah, certainly a significant tournament. I remember speaking to Alex Morgan from the USA a few weeks back and she was saying that she thinks it's going to be the biggest biggest tournament that was football's ever seen. And um, I think it's hard to kind of um, disagree with that because, as you say, the game is at a point now where just everything is being kind of magnified. So things like sponsorships, stakeholders, even player demands, we've heard players come out and speak about wanting bonus payments and yeah, just small things like that, which hasn't really been the case before. So yeah, I think it's going to be the biggest tournament that that we've seen. And am I right in saying there's more teams actually involved, more countries actually being represented than ever before? Yeah, they've obviously expanded the the tournament to 32 teams, which you mentioned those there in those points before. So yeah, more countries, more opportunities for players who are, I think, trying to make that that bridge semi-professional to professional football. You look at a lot of the African nations, they're perhaps behind quite a lot of the European teams and certainly the American teams in terms of their kind of domestic football and their their leagues. So if the national teams can start competing at World Cups where they can start getting, you know, player salaries, they can obviously get money from FIFA, which can be distributed down to their domestic leagues, then that will obviously have a big impact on the standards of football in their home countries. So yeah, big opportunity for plenty of these new teams. Um, there might be some big score lines, but I think we have to remember that obviously women's football is, you know, it was banned for 50 years. So uh, it's behind the men's game. They are playing catch up. And yeah, these big score lines we, we've seen in, in men's football tournaments in the past. So it, it wouldn't be a shock to see them in, in women's football as we welcome these, these new nations who are trying to grow their game in their domestic countries. 100% and that feels really apt at a time where the game feels more inclusive than ever on the women's side in particular and it feels like we should be allowing people in all different nations to really get involved and really fall in love with the game and I think that's exactly what this tournament is going to do with the eyes of the world watching and it feels good as well because it's obviously that the men's it, men aren't playing at the moment in the Premier League and in Europe so it feels mm-hmm. like we can all just dedicate our time to watching all, all the women's teams and that feels great as well. Yeah, absolutely. As you say, the men aren't playing. We've just had the men's um, Euros, the under-21 championships, and we saw England do really well there. So it'd be great to see the women obviously build on their European success and go and take that one step further on on the global stage. But given the time difference, I do think we just need people to get behind it, really. And the more people that are watching it back home, the more people that are getting up sort of slightly earlier in the morning, perhaps, to tune in and watch and watch England and obviously the other sort of countries taking part, then... Yeah, I just think that'd be great for for the game. And we know that there's some massive, massive players that are going to be at this World Cup. Uh, USA are trying to get a third in a row, which has never been done before. So, yeah, plenty of players chasing history, really. And yeah, there's certainly going to be big, 
be some big games and big storylines and yeah, some big players involved. Let's talk about some of the teams, Emma. Let's start with England. And the fact is that people watching the Euros and following all their success in the Euros will probably be ex- expecting a similar team to line up, but the reality is quite different. So talk us through the dynamics of the team and a lot of the players that are out through injury or also retirement. Yeah, well, we know that for sure there's four players out of that unchanged starting eleven that England won the Euros with. Obviously, that was quite a unique thing where Serena Wiegmann literally didn't change the starting eleven the whole way through. Uh, four of those 11 won't be at this tournament. Um, that's a mixture of injuries and, and retirements. But yeah, the captain, Leah Williamson, who's obviously a hugely recognisable name, she's not going to be there because she suffered an ACL injury. Uh, Beth Mead, who was top scorer at Euro 2022, Ballon d'Or runner-up, absolutely massive name as well. She's also done her ACL, so she won't be there. And then Frank Kirby, who has been around for a long, long time. Anyone who's sort of maybe followed women's football on the fringes uh, certainly England will know Frank Kirby and her talents, but she's also had um, massive injury problems this season. So those three are, are huge misses. And then Ellen White, who's, you know, the country's all-time record goal scorer, she retired as well. So yeah, some some big names missing from the England squad, but there's some really, really exciting young players who have come through this year as well. Uh, Lauren James, who's the sister of Rhys James, obviously England and, and Chelsea star. Um, she's really, really one to look out for. She's a bit of a superstar, really. And this could be a breakout tournament for her. That's what a lot of people are expecting. And we also saw, you know, a, a couple of big names that came off the bench in the Euros. So the likes of Chloe Kelly, Alessio Russo, Ella Toon. They obviously all made their marks and all sort of carried the headlines a lot throughout that tournament. They're now, you know, big names, big stars in this team. So they could have a more prominent role. So if you did follow the Euros, and uh, there's still plenty of, of names there that, that, that you should recognise. Do they go in with quite high hopes still then? How are they being viewed in terms of one of the favourites or are they a little bit behind the leading pack? I think certainly overall, generally, they're they're up there. They're one of the favourites. You know, they're still ranked, I think, fourth in the world. So they're they're up there with with the big with the big girls for sure. But I think certainly internally, um, you speak to kind of media and fans in England, I think there's a little bit of um, anxiety because of these injuries, but also England have got a really, really tough draw. Um, potentially en route to the final. So Germany, who they beat, beat in the Euro 2022 final, they could face in the quarterfinals. And they could come across, you know, the joint host Australia, who have got Sam Kerr, obviously one of the world's greatest players, one of the best strikers, um, the Chelsea superstar. So, yeah, they could face face her and her Australia team in the last 16. So very, very tough draw for England. Uh, the USA, obviously the reigning champions, are in the other side of the draw. So they wouldn't actually meet them until the final if they were to get there. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people maybe are a little bit anxious as to whether England can go beyond that, that quarterfinal stage and potentially losing to Germany. But if they can, then then who knows? Because you would then fancy them to, to go all the way to the final. Yeah, well, that's what I've read. Kind of that would be the biggest sticking point coming up against Germany. And then after that, people would back them to go on and at least get to the final. But you mm. mentioned there the USA. Are they the most likely or the clear favourites, you would say, to win it? They've won it four times before, haven't they? And they're the holders, of course. So they're fighting to retain that. Yeah, they are definitely the favourites now. You look back to six six to nine months ago, maybe. I think it was England who were the favourites, but... Now, given the injuries and the fact that the USA team have really started to ramp things up in the last few months, um, yeah, they, they're going into this tournament as the bookies' favourites. They're the world number one and, as you say, the reigning champions. So they've got some seriously, seriously talented young players who perhaps, as I say, six to nine months ago, 
we weren't sure how they were going to be. It was a bit of a transitional period for the, the USA. Um, but yeah, they, they've been looking extremely, it's, uh, yeah, really, really good the last few months. So USA, certainly the, the big favorites. And then Germany, obviously up there as well. The fact that they did reach that, that Euro final. Um, and they had a few players missing there as well. And yeah, they're still world number two. So those two, I think, are the probably the two biggest favourites. But England definitely up there in the mix with them. Now the other outsiders to look out for? Yeah, I think there's a few interesting teams, actually. You know, I've watched Brazil a few times the last couple of months. They've, they're in the top 10 um, ranked teams in the, country, in, in the world. And yeah, they've been building sort, sort of, you know, in terms of their domestic leagues. They've got really, really smart manager in charge and they're looking pretty dangerous. So I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to face them. We'll see Australia as well with Sam Kerr on home soil. I think they're a, a bit of an outsider bet as well. Um, and a lot of people don't really know what to make of Spain because they've had a lot of issues. Uh, there's been a bit of dispute between the players and the federation. So there are some key players missing from that Spain squad, but they still have a huge bulk of the Barcelona Champions League winners in there. They have the Ballon d'Or winner, Alexia Puteas. So they have some of the best players in the world. So if Spain can kind of sort, sort out their off-field issues, then yeah, a lot of people think that they can go all the way as well. So they'd be the three teams I'd say could be the dark horses outside of the the kind of the top the top four or five yeah and a couple of things to finish then the first being from a Liverpool perspective and in terms of Liverpool interest is there any players that we can enjoy from um from our team in the World Cup yeah there's not too many out there but we have obviously Neve Fahi the women's team captain she's out there with the Republic of Ireland it's their first ever World Cup so a massive moment for Neve Fahi and I'm sure she'll be trying to soak up every moment and it's yeah very proud moment for the Republic of Ireland and it's only a year since the Northern Ireland reached their first major tournament at the Euros as well so definitely things progressing across the sea over there um, so yeah she's the big one to look out for really and then Fuka Nagano who we all absolutely love obviously <laughs> made her mark when she joined Liverpool in January and she'll be out there as well so she's one to watch and I'm sure she'll play a really crucial role as well and then uh, yeah Shanice van der Sanden is on the standby list for the Netherlands so we won't see her out there as things stand but obviously if there's any injuries within the next week or so and she might get a late call up so yeah perhaps that's one to keep an eye on as well well we get behind the two that are definitely going to be out there really exciting as you say for Nephi in particular I want to mention finally the prize money it's 110, 110 million I think it's in dollars now up from 30 million at the last tournament it's a step in the right direction but much lower than the 440 million at the men's world cup how is it viewed from a women's football perspective that the prize money is going definitely in the right direction but there's still such a huge gap between the women's and the men's yeah as you say still such a huge gap I think it's obviously progressed three times as much from than you know 2019 so that there's definite progress um but I think that was something that was led quite strongly by the players they worked alongside FIFA Pro um to get that kind of discussion with FIFA going in order to improve uh prize money but also for the first time this year which I think is even more significant is that individual players will receive direct salaries from FIFA. So whereas in the past, FIFA would supply every nation competing in the World Cup a certain amount of money, and then those federations could then choose how to distribute the money. Um, now players directly are receiving um, their own salary uh, as part of whatever stage they reach. So I think it's about $30,000 um, uh, if, if you reach you know the group stages. And I think... If you go on to win the tournament, then then as an individual, you can earn, I think it's 120 million 
US dollars. You might just have to double check those exact figures, but it's around about there. Um, so yeah, that I think in itself 100, is quite 120,000, I'm guessing. And just, be... yeah, sorry. We'll all be like, what? Yeah, that's quite a lot of money. Um, yeah, so that's obviously quite an insignificant, uh, quite a significant move there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the fact that, that every nation as well, as we touched on before, especially for those, those new nations coming in, um, that money will be more than they've probably ever had in terms of, um, you know, their, their country's kind of women's football history. So it'll be, yeah, it'll have a huge impact on, on their futures and, and where the federations can then spend money and invest in women's football going forward. And hopefully a huge moment as well for women's football, for us as fans watching it, for young people who can grow up and have these role models to look up to, for anyone that thinks that they don't have a place in the game. I think the Euros was such a huge moment in women's football history and not just on the pitch for the footballers that were playing, but for the whole country really and the whole dynamic of the game and how it was viewed. So I'm really hoping, I'm sure you are too, that this World Cup has a similar impact. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what everyone's wanting. And as I said before, I just hope as the tournament goes on, the hype will increase and obviously success for the home nations, not just England, Republic of Ireland as well, I think would would really help um, sort of get more eyes on there, get more attention. So, yeah, if we can come home, if if the girls can come home from Australia and, you know, they're on back pages of newspapers again, then I think that would be a huge success so yeah let's just hope that they go out there and, and do a good job and and yeah we can all get, get on board with it and enjoy it yeah let's hope so I'll be waking up early to watch it I'll I'll break my uh my late alarm rule and I'll be waking up to watch it. <laughs> I can't wait it's going to be really really exciting I hope you're all getting excited about it too Emma I'll leave you to go and pack I'm sure you're like right what am I what have I got to do <laughs> This will actually go out. If this makes you feel better, this will go out after you're packed. You're already there. Everything, the hard work will be done and you'll be out there enjoying yourself and working really hard. So that's something to take away from it. At some point you will be there. Yeah, Yeah, after the struggling to to sleep on a plane for two days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we won't think about that. Thanks so much, Emma. And do follow along with all of Emma's coverage and the, the rest of the coverage from their team who are out there. And yeah, really exciting time for women's football. And hopefully you can all get on board with that. Thanks so much, Emma. Speak to you soon.